This episode of Standard Orbit is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for your tablet, smartphone, and desktop. Support the show and get a free audiobook of your choice by visiting audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. Follow Standard Orbit, Mr. Chekhov, and take us in. Hi, sir. Is the word of Landru. Joy to you, friends. Welcome to Standard Orbit, Trek FM's dedicated show about the original Star Trek series. This is a show where we dive into the characters, concepts, cliches, and other things that don't start with C about the original series. My name is Drew, or Landru. I'm the TOS editor for Network. With me today is my co-host Mike from Commentary Trek Stars. Hello. We're just really quick going to have a little intro before we get back to the commentary. It would have been a lot easier to say commentary. I'm conman Terry. Okay, maybe not. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> you will lose this fight. All right. But before we get to it, uh, we want to let you know that about the special promotion we're running. You can win great Star Trek prizes just for reviewing Standard Orbit and our other shows on iTunes or Stitcher. Each review gets you an entry in the drawing, and we'll give you full details at the end of the show. So to start the second part of the commentary, you can fast forward to one hour, two minutes, and 48 seconds into the movie just as Terrell is saying how Khan went wild on the regular one scientists. And once you got that synced up or around that point, then uh, you can push play on your DVD or Blu-ray or Netflix uh, on the count of start. Yeah. Or if you're using the laser disc, you can just flip it over to side two. <laughs> Did I cut it that well? No, you didn't, which kind of bothered me, honestly. But, you know, what can you well, do? Well, you could have told me where the break was. I, I, was go- to... I was going to, and then you, you, you cut it too quickly, I guess, for me. I, I, it was <laughs> my fault. I, I was even noting it while we were watching the movie, and I'm like, oh, right there, there's a good break. Sorry, my fault. Okay. <laughs> well, get ready to start your player in three, two, one, start. I, I'd not noticed before until we watched it with the subtitles here, but Kirk, when he's calming Chekhov down, calls him Pav. That that's a little that's a little personal thing I'd never noticed before. Yeah, he calls him. Uh, that's uh, yeah, right. He uses the shortened version of his name. He calls him Pavel in four, also, doesn't he? I always yeah. like that when, when I always loved it actually when the characters called each other by their first name when Scotty calls Kirk Jim in the original show. Um, you know, I think, I think only once I could be mistaken, but I think he only calls him that once. And it's a really great moment, you know, where he's like, you know, Jim, like, like, you know, like you, you can't sacrifice yourself, you know? Um, I always thought that was great because, you know, normally they're either using nicknames or, or last names and it shows that the characters care about each other. And then to use a short version is kind of cool. You know? Nobody calls McCoy Lenny. That makes me sad. <laughs> It's also sort of like a thing. Like I remember, there was one time where, like, um, I was going to a comic book store, and I was I was just starting to get back into comics. And my my friend who worked there, who I was, everyone always calls me Schindler. That's just the way it works, especially there because there were like three mics working there. And there was one time where I I came up and I had like a huge stack of comics. I'm like, okay, I'm gonna buy these. And he's like, you're buying all of these. And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, geez, Mike. And I'm like, what? and the fact that he said that name, Mike, I'm like, wow, maybe I should rethink how many comic books I'm buying. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, that that happens here, too. You know, I mean, like in I think it was Into Darkness where uh, at one point Scotty calls uh, Kirk Jim. Right. Mm-hmm. And that, there's just something about that where it's just like it it's such a simple little thing that you can do in in a script. And yet it speaks volumes about that moment, you know. Yeah, I went to Catholic uh, school in, uh, in high school, and, and everyone was known by their last names. And, uh, uh, you know, to 30 years later, I still refer to my friends, some of my closest friends, by their last name. And it's, um, you know, it, it is when you're either having a discussion, an argument, or, you know, a moment of sadness or something, and you're sympathizing with your friend that you that we use their first names. You know, it is it's a great... It's a great tr- it's a, it's a it's a great trick of script writing, as you said. It's also a you know because it reflects reality. Yeah, it still freaks really me out. 
it, it still freaks me out whenever I'm I'm doing a podcast with Max because he always calls me Schindler and but when we're on the podcast he calls me Mike. So anytime he says something like Mike, stop that or something, I'm like, whoa, whoa, what happened? Did this just get real? What 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 what's going on now? Why are you so mad at me? Why are you calling me Mike? <laughs> now, now yeah, they don't have here. That, I don't have oh, that I'm problem sorry, at work because uh, my last cool name's Stuart. Name. Well, no, my <laughs> last name's Stuart, and there's a Stuart whose first name at work. So when people say Mr. Stewart, they're actually talking to, you know, because everybody goes by their first name, they're actually talking to the other guy and not me. It's very confusing. Well, you you have an action first name. You have a cool first name. It's Drew. You know, it's like you, you're Aha. doing something. Yeah. Yeah. Drawing. It's exciting. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> it's still something. What am I doing, John? I'm, I'm in a room, you know. <laughs> I'm doing nothing. <laughs> this scene here where they're fighting was... Uh, again with Bill Couch, uh, much grander uh, and was filmed um, where the two of them really had a much bigger fight. In fact, if you remember the movie poster, um, there's a, the one, the movie poster that has like different images, uh, like as a border around the poster, there's an image of, of um, David over Kirk on the floor with a knife. And that wasn't a publicity photo. That was actually from the film um, because the, uh, the son was going to beat the father um, at the fight in a way, although it didn't resolve itself because Carol walks in and the two of them stop and get up. So again, so they, they truncated that, um, uh, you know, here again, probably a good idea because it preserves the hero status of Kirk, but it, it, um, you know, again, a little moment that would have been longer had they, uh, had they kept it. I mean, I can no see that. The Jetta. Sorry. Uh, oh, oh, poor Jedi. Return of the Jedi. Revenge of the Jedi. Yeah. At this point, it would have been Revenge of the Jedi. Yes. That guy behind uh, uh, Khan here, because uh, who, whoever looks at that poor guy, he, you know, you're just so focused on Montalban's amazing performance. But that's an actor by the name of Tim Culbertson who. Um, is in the movie a lot and uh, is really, uh, other than Yalcom, uh, really the second main uh, consman, you know, uh, as they were known on set. Um, and uh, he was in like Battlestar Galactica. He was in a bunch of genre stuff. And uh, Someone just did an interview with him, a newspaper interview with him. And uh, uh, it was interesting to read about, you know, what it was like to work for him, for him to work with Ricardo Montalban, all those young actors with Ricardo Montalban, Laura Banks and Pam Bennett and, and uh, Judson Scott and Tim Culbertson and all the people on the Reliant Bridge. They, uh, they you know, talked about, you know, working with him. It was, like, it was like we're working with Hollywood royalty, you know. Here's there's there's cardboard your favorite ear again. There's the ear. Yep. There's the... Uh, <laughs> That's again. Look at that. That optical effect is pretty, pretty, pretty amazing. Yeah, I know. Rod, Roddenberry. Zooming. Roddenberry did not like that sequence at all. Um, uh, we have his notes uh, of his uh, <laughs> what he liked and did not like about the script, and uh, he did not like that because he felt that Kirk would not have done that. That that wasn't in the Star Trek spirit. Uh, um, you know, that, but, that uh, Kirk would have stu studied the creature, not killed the creature. So, well, Spock uh, wasn't there to convince him to study it, though. Right. And I, you know, you could see it as like, well, geez, dude, the, 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 this thing is a threat, so I'm going to get rid of it. You know, it makes sense, certainly from a storytelling point of view. This is we're, my favorite scene. <laughs> were, were there... When we saw, when, when I saw this at the uh, IMAX version and whatever it was in the 90s, uh, 96 or 97, uh, they had, um, the movie was, you know, well, it, was, it wasn't the IMAX version, but it was in an IMAX theater, right? But it was a big screen version. So anyway, they, uh, the whole film, people were quiet, laughing when they're supposed to laugh or whatever, but that, this whole sequence, word for word, it was like, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, everyone saying the lines for, for Kirk and Conbeck, it was great. Wonderful. Beautiful. And then everyone went back to being quiet again. As soon as Con, you did the Con yell, you went back to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I actually saw it then too at, at Navy Pier. That was great. 
And that was that was in 70 millimeter. And the interesting thing about that, which I thought was weird, was that 70 millimeter print had the two on it, um, which I didn't mm. think existed. And then I later saw a 35 millimeter print, which did not have the two on it. So that was bizarre. But yeah. Yeah, the two, it's interesting. When was that exactly added? It had to have been for like a re-release, but I, I don't know. I mean, like the, it's, it was, yeah, because I, I wasn't expecting to see it on that 70 millimeter print. And then I was expecting to see it when I saw the 35 millimeter and it wasn't there. They played it in 35 millimeter at the Art Institute of Chicago. So. Yeah, they're not. They're not. I mean, you know, I, the 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 reasoning I think probably back then was because uh, putting a two and a three in front of a movie was pretty common back then. Uh, you know, there might have been two trains of thought. One was you may not want it from Paramount's point of view. They may not want it to remind people that it was a sequel in a way. You know, mm-hmm. um, not that the first. I mean, the first film sold more tickets than than any Star Trek film until two thousand and nine. If you don't go by, you know. Um, uh, the, you know, if you count for inflation, but, um, you know, it was wildly expensive too. So they made, they made much more profit on Star Trek two, I would imagine. Um, but the, the, uh, the, uh, um, there was that idea, I think that, that notion, and then maybe adding it after the fact was a result of, well, there was three and there was four and, you know, cause the, the, was there going to be a Star Trek three at the time they were making this? Who, who could have imagined, you know, um, if, I if, think, I think they knew when they assembled it and looked at it. And that's why that ending was changed because they realized there was going to be a three. I think they knew that they had a film that would be, it, maybe not as successful as it was, but they certainly had a film that they knew would be successful and that there should, there was a likelihood there was going to be a three, but at the time they were filming this, you know, could have been their thinking that this was it, you know, anyway. I, I could be mistaken about this, but I believe the way the timeline works from what I've heard is that they were calling it Star Trek, the wrath of Khan. That's what they put in the actual movie. And then at some point in the marketing, they decided to add the two. So I think the two is in like a lot of the ads and stuff like that. I don't know if that's right or not, but that's what I heard. And then the two was added to the film for home video, I guess, and then later prints. But... I mean, I've never seen a poster or anything that didn't have the two on it. Yeah. Not that I can. Yeah, recall. it could be a marketing thing. Yeah, I mean, there are some posters. I think did did the. Well, that's interesting. I'd have to look at my album, my record album, and see if the album has the two or not. There were some things that didn't. I did the novel when it first came out have the two. I don't think it did. Again, I can't. I can be wrong. You know, it's really interesting to me that I just saw, which kind of blew my mind in a sense for whatever reason, when I pulled out the Blu-ray disc. Yep. The packaging and everything says two, 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 but when you open it up and you look at the disc itself, it just says Star Trek: The Wrath of Khan, and like all the other movies have have the numerals there, but that one doesn't. Like interesting, interesting. I love. Yeah, but this uh, is the, the same story. company that gave us the upside down Enterprise B on the Star Trek Six bonus disc for the DVDs. So, okay, yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's true. They should have a fan look at that stuff before it goes out. I've always thought Seriously. there should be like, this, you know, someone sits in a room. They they never they don't leave. They just sit there and they show them stuff and say, hey, "Yeah, that E is, is not what? curved in that Star Trek title." You put that movie back <laughs> and you correct that font. Fix that. This is a great scene. Uh, uh, you know, again, a very you know a scene that I think makes the movie um, appealing to way more than just science fiction fans. I mean, I know my, my, my mother and father, my my father likes science fiction, but my mother and father really related to the sequence, just the humanity of this, this interchange, the, the, the theme of going, growing older, um, you know, the, the, the regrets that people have in their lifetime, uh, you know, uh, the, what could have been and that sort of thing, rekindling a romance here, you know, um, but there, there's always been a couple questions, you know, that, that have never been answered. One is, you know, are were were Kirk and Carol married? Because there are some interviews with William Shatner in the era where he refers to her as having been his wife. Hmm. And so, you know, 
you know, that would be an interesting question. I, I've never had the chance to ask William Shatner at a convention or anything like that when they when they take questions. But I, I, if someone ever does, it would be great to hear that because I know Ricardo Montalban and um, Judson Scott when they rehearsed, they they saw the character as father and son, that that was his son, and that um, uh, that's the way they treated the relationship. And there is actually a line in the deleted version. Uh, I'm sorry, there's a line in, a, in, in the September 81 version of the script um, written by Nicholas Meyer, where after the fight between Kirk and Khan and they beam back up, uh, Khan actually strokes Yalcom's cheek and says, you know, I'm, I'm basically says that you, you were worried about me. I'm touched. And I, I, that seems to be a more a fatherly thing to do, you know? So uh, there's no answers in those versions of the script, whether Carol and, and Kirk were married um, and then, 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 then divorced, you know, after the fact, or was it a scenario where they weren't married in the first place or, um, you know, were, were, were they father and son, you know, actually Kirk and uh, Kakan and Yalcom. So, um, by the way, if you're watching this, the scene and seeing the getting ready for the apple, eating the apple, which is great in Star Trek 2009, he's eating an apple during the Kobayashi movie, mm-hmm. which I thought was a really nice moment. Um, but Chekhov is actually in the scene, but you never see him. Um, oh. He's sitting, he's sitting off. Yeah, I have the photos of them filming this and uh, he's sitting off to the side, but because everything's such a close uh, picture, you never, I don't think you ever do see it, even when they do like, uh, I don't think they ever do a pullback. I don't think you see it other than for a second where you see the whole cave like that from, you don't see it from this angle looking this way. And so you never see Chekhov, but he's there. Um, in fact, during the sequence, which was longer, um, there's a, there's an interchange between David and, um, uh, David and Savick that was edited out where he, where she says, so you're a bastard. You know, she basically says you're a bastard. She says you're a bastard, says that word. Um, and he, uh, he, you know, he's like, yeah, I guess I am or something. And, um, that's, you know, the beginning of sort of the romance or flirtation between the two of them, which was, a, which was scripted and some of that was filmed. So that little that that scene where Kirk, you know, does that wonderful bites the apple and says, "I don't like to lose." That whole scene um, was longer, and in, in a portion of that, uh, McCoy was going to get over and check on McCoy, on, on check on check on Chekhov. <laughs> check on well, Chekhov. <laughs> if Savick calls him a bastard, then that would imply that they weren't married, right? Right. So it's, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's one of those things where it's like, you know, I, I'm interested to know, did, did Shatner and, and, um, uh, BBB play that role? Did, did, did they consider, did they talk about that? And did they think of it as a husband, a former husband and wife? Uh, which, you know, I think in some ways is interesting because, because it, would, it would imply that there's a lar- much larger story, um, you know, to the two of those characters. I mean, that, that there was obviously a long term, uh, well, not necessarily obviously a long term, but, 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 you know, that they were part of each other's life in a, in a, in a significant way that it wasn't, uh, uh, you know, a, a one week adventure or fun or romance or something. And I think that'd be interesting to kind of know that, you know, um, uh, knowing the history of the characters. If you look really closely in this scene, well, you don't have to look that closely. It's, it's pretty obvious. One of the cadets that's going down the hallway there, right there, was uh, is James Horner, the composer of the music of the film. <laughs> I love the torpedo this was, room. Yeah, this was a scene that uh, Nicholas Meyer wanted to do that uh, there was some controversy over. Should they be manually loading the torpedoes, you know? But I think it really works, you know? Plus, of course, it's important for establishing that later on in the film with uh, with uh, Spock's uh, funeral scene. Well, that was actually something that I was going to ask you about because you touched on it briefly, but you said that you've seen Roddenberry's notes where he talks about, you know, what he liked and what he didn't like. What what did he like and what didn't he like? I'm really, yeah. really curious about that. Well, you know, one of the things I thought was fascinating was he he was not a stickler for 
the kind of minutia that I think we as fans are stickler for sometimes, you know, where if the shields are down and you're not supposed to be able to do so, I, he, he was a storyteller. So he knew that sometimes the story needed you to sort of fudge the established universe a little bit, um, not egregiously or anything like that. But, you know, he, he would be like, you know, there were things in there, little things where he'd be like, well, they don't use sir, you know, uh, that kind of stuff, you know? Um, so, but he was pretty loose on some of the, like, you would think like we as fans would be like, Oh, wait a second. You can't have a starship doesn't do that kind of thing. You know? Um, he, he, the biggest, I mean, a, a whole section was about how Spock can, cannot die for legal reasons that if they kill Spock, <laughs> they are denying, they are depriving him a source of income. Um, uh, you know, so Roddenberry that he own, he created the character. He decides whether the character is killed or not. I mean, you could certainly understand his point of view, right? I mean, Spock was, and I think still is, like I said, the face of Star Trek. And so, to kill him could have meant uh, killing the franchise in a way if it wasn't handled right. And um, and he was adamant uh, uh, about that. He did not like that. He did not like the scene where. Uh, you know, that the way, the way they killed the SETI eel, he did not like the militaristic trappings. Um, mm -hmm. He did not, he, he you know, it, of course the enterprise uh, was based on the, the Navy to some degree, you know, but he did not like the, the sort of ranking, the, the pipping. He did not like the uniforms, um, anything like that. Um, he, 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 there were a lot of objections about the character of David because he kind of felt not, not that David existed or that David was Kirk's son or anything like that, but more that he felt David kind of, he felt David was sort of doltish, you know, um, uh, not using the word entitlement minded, but in some ways, you know, sort of this set up little, little upstart kind of punkish kind of kid and, and that he needed to be, reworked, you know, and what's even more fascinating is seeing what the reaction is to those notes. And there were things that were taken, the notes that he, you know, he was the script consultant uh, and executive consultant on the film. And they did take uh, some of his suggestions and others were, you know, uh, dismissed. Obviously they went ahead with uh, Spock, especially uh, as one of those, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's great reading it. Cause you know, to me, that's getting into the mind of, of Roddenberry who created it all and who, um, you know, uh, uh, and, and really deserves, I mean, he deserves a lot of credit in the con history as well. It was, it was Gene Roddenberry who wrote the final version of space seed. And that was a script uh, that Gene Kuhn contributed to Carrie Wilbur wrote the story treatment for it. And also one, uh, one, one pass at the script. Um, and they, they, they had serious, serious problems until a few days before filming was supposed to begin and Roddenberry fixed it all. And he made help along with Gene Kuhn really helped make Khan the character who he became. So, uh, you know, he, uh, he deserves a lot of credit for that, for setting up and establishing Khan as such a strong character in Space Seed. Um, in addition, of course, to creating the whole universe of Star Trek, obviously, as well. Was there anything in those notes where Roddenberry was like, that's really cool. I'm, I'm, I'm glad that this <laughs> is in that movie. Yeah, there, he did like the that Kirk was using that, 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 I think he doesn't come out and say it in terms of like, well, it didn't occur in the first film, but because it did, but, uh, but I think he was happy with the fact that Kirk was an intellectual character, that he was using his mind and the technology and the science. Um, you know, there was, there was a concern about the science too. And then he praised the science. He liked the innovative idea of the terraforming notion and things like that and then there were other things occasionally where he'd be like you know well you better check with the science people is it possible you know if you were really in a nebula what would occur that kind of thing um so and that was always something he was concerned with we have um we've been doing uh, our, our latest research has been going through about 2000 newspaper articles over the last 50 years and, and looking at them and one of the things we found were a couple of writings by uh, Gene Roddenberry, where the articles, the the we just started writing a four part series for StarTrek.com about 
those newspaper articles, but one of the articles, uh, two actually, were written by uh, Gene Roddenberry himself right before Star Trek came on. And I love anything like that where, because you really get to see what his interpretation of the characters, of uh, what was happening to the characters, uh, how do you, and in those 1966 uh, newspaper articles, how do you explain Star Trek to people? And that's coming directly from the creator. So, um, you know, uh, unfortunately, there, there, you know, there isn't a lot, there wasn't enough done with him. You know what I mean? Uh, the, the, because people weren't, the making of that type of, you know, that world of interest in the making of something wasn't as big as it is today. And so I really wish there had been even more. I would have loved to have seen, you know, Gene Roddenberry write the definitive making of Star Trek book. I mean, we could, we come close with uh, the making of Star Trek by Stephen Whitfield, uh, who's I think his real name is Stephen Poe. Uh, but he, but it's, uh, you know, there, there wasn't enough. There weren't enough interviews, frankly, in my opinion. There weren't enough chances for Roddenberry to tell us uh, what he thought about things. And of course, he kept relatively quiet publicly uh, about the Star Trek films after him because, um, you know, he utilized his position. I mean, you know, he was smart. If he came out against the film, it would have hurt it. So they, 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 they had to kind of listen to some of his suggestions, but he was wise enough to know that they weren't going to listen to all of them, you know, and that you fight, you fight the big battles and not the small stuff. So, do you know, was my, he general? Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, Nicholas Meyer does write about in his biography. It was a contentious relationship, you know, there, that, that, that b b between Harv Bennett and Gene, um, uh, and between, uh, Nicholas Meyer and Gene Roddenberry. It was, and, and of course I, you know, it was certainly, I could imagine not easy to be the person coming in and having to deal with Gene Roddenberry and then not being easy being Gene Roddenberry, having to deal with, you know, people coming in and, and, and in essence, uh, con controlling what, you know, you created, it, ha it couldn't be easy for anyone on, on, on either side. Um, uh, but of course they were able to work with each other, uh, enough that we got, uh, we got, you know, great Star Trek films. So that was what? my favorite part. The Enterprise coming behind, you know, rising behind the Reliant. Yeah. I just wanted to say that at all my favorite parts. <laughs> Something you don't see a lot in science fiction, right? The use of, of up and down in space. You know, it's always sideways, mm -hmm. you know? So it was great. Yeah. So on the whole, do you know of any any of Roddenberry's reaction to the finished film? Has Is there any time that he's ever it's spoken about whether or not he likes it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think he thought, you know, he, he called it a great adventure. Um, I think he, I think his affinity was more for uh, Star Trek four of the films that were done that were not uh, under his producership. Um, mm -hmm. He was not a, he was not a fan of Star Trek five um, more because of the themes of it, the religious themes of it. Um, and, uh, had, had some problems with six, although, uh, gave it his approval, uh, right before he passed away, unfortunately in 1991. But, uh, um, you know, he liked it enough that he approved of it and it got his approval, but he, he did not like the, it, he interpreted the characters, if the, the, the enterprise characters as acting in a racist fashion, um, mm -hmm. and, and did not like that. And, 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 you know, that, that element of that, um, so, you know, it was always, uh, but of the, of the films, at least in terms of what I've seen, the least commentary was on Wrath of Khan, partially because I think he was still trying to figure out what his role was now, you know, and, and what he should say or shouldn't say, um, you know, but he was very upset about uh, Spock's death, uh, even after the film, although he felt they handled it in a dignified way, if I remember right, but not necessarily happy with it. Yeah. So here we have Khan activating the Genesis device. Um, so is this some kind of safety measure to make sure you don't accidentally turn it on? Oh, you got to turn this, and you turn this, and then you spin this, and then you push this, and then you... 
It makes sense. I mean, it's similar to like Alien, you know. Right. That's what I was going to say. It's kind of like Alien. Like, if you really want to overload the ship, you've got to push this, 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 and this. Mm-hmm. That's just a modern faucet, I believe. It doesn't look like it looks like a faucet. <laughs> but this is the scene where you would have had the second appearance of the Khan baby, as it's called, um, right there. The, 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 the Khan toddler would have been crawling around the torpedo, and then as it detonated, would have been implying that being the first to be killed. It's um, terrible. Yeah, it's, it's it's horrific, right? Uh, but you know, the idea was, and I think it's a great idea. But uh, you know, it, it it's 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 it would have been disturbing. Uh, it may have even overshadowed Spock's death. I think in a way, yeah. You know, so so it was a wise thing not to not to actually to do it. But they did What's try to film the transporter room. Yeah, that's what I was yeah, and thinking. He's a, cute, he's, he's a cute little baby. We we have the pictures of them filming that. I mean, a cute little kid. Uh, you know, to me looks like, you know, maybe about two years, well, maybe not two years old, but, but, you know, certainly under two, um, but has a little con, I mean, it's not like a parody, but the hair is a little bit long, like con, you know, it, I could is see he showing how off his baby pecs. Yeah. I mean, he has a little bit of, you know, I mean, it, it's, it looks a little, I, I could see how there was confusion over the years where people thought that was supposed to be con's kid, you know, but that would have implied his wife either took another wife, which would have negated this whole, um, you know, uh, 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 revenge motif, I think. Yeah. yeah. Or that his wife had only recently died, which, you know, but, um, uh, they tried filming at the baby. It's funny that the, the, the little, little kid is crying <laughs> when looking at the torpedo. So mm-hmm. I think there was a problem with that, just the, the, the kid in reality being scared of it. But the, I think the idea of it was to show that, Khan's, uh, and we had asked Mr. Meyer about this too, and he had told us that the idea was to show that Khan's people were trying to survive, that they, that, they're, that they that they could continue, and that the 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 Khan really betrayed his people because he put his own vengeance above his people's future. His people did have a future, and mm-hmm. he 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 lost that for them. Whereas Spock here is sacrificing himself so that his comrades could have a future. I mean, you get that, you know, but it, I, it, according to Mr. Rat, it just didn't work. It, 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 that didn't come across. And so that was taken out. And then, you know, again, wisely so. Because we'd still be, I think, in all, uh, we'd all be in shock. <laughs> still, you know. But. So here we have Spock's death scene. Um it still works. Still works really yeah. well. That's another great edit, like just that device, that 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 technology, mm-hmm. like like Drew was saying earlier. I mean, the, what is that? You know what I mean? Like, what? <laughs> but who what cares? Is it? I mean, he it, just it, has to like turn something inside this thing that shoots radiation. I don't understand. Yeah, yeah, and, and you know, and and it's so great because we didn't need to understand it. You know, like it it that and it did, and what it does, of course, you get the just visually a similarity between the Genesis torpedoes countdown and it's, and it's growing and it's light and Spock in the light. You know I mean? There's just, it's, there's so much really cool stuff here, you know? Um, It also seems like in the film, it also seems like a doable task. You know I mean? Like when, whenever I watch into darkness and you know, Kirk (laughs) is doing basically the same thing. I'm always like, there is no way that thing is moving for him, you know? How is this going to work, Kirk? You know? Right. Whereas here I'm like, okay, he can do this. It's just going to kill him. I think it shows the, also the power of the music, too. I think um, what what makes it palatable and in into darkness is the music, which is really beautiful when he's sacrificing himself. And then, interestingly, a little bit more... Uh, here anyway, a little bit more action adventure music, which keeps it where I think you're still kind of hopeful, you know, I mean, there's still this idea of you, you, you when, when Kirk is doing it, you already sense doom. When Spock mm-hmm. is doing it, you're sen- you're sensing sacrifice, but you're thinking, no, 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 he, he's, he's going to make it. Cause he's still, you kind of have that little fun, almost fun, adventuresome music. Um, 
that's playing really until you get to the sequence. And even when he stands up, because when he says he's dead already, you think he's dead already, not not meaning he's sentenced to death. And and when he stands up, you get you, you get a moment of hope, you know that that that, that maybe uh, Spock's going to make it. That it's just like the original show, you know, it's the Tholian web all over again. You know, no one's dead. Um, and uh, you know, I I, th- I I prefer this because it plays with you more. It doesn't telegraph as much. It's still trying to get you to see things uh, uh, to to trick you in a way to so that you're seeing something you're not seeing, you know? Um, how many, how many times in the original series is like, Oh, Spock's blind. Oh wait, you know, he's Vulcan. You know, we could fix right. that. And, he's got know, eight. Eyelids. Uh, oh no, he's got, he's got this alien on that's going to take over his mind. Nope. He's Vulcan. And there's just all kinds of, there's precedent for maybe Vulcans are immune to certain types of radiation. I don't know. Maybe we have some of Khan's blood. Oh yeah. Uh-huh. Um, no, but anyway, just a couple things there. Yeah, the music in this is really good. It's so good, in fact, that James Horner used it for every other movie that he ever worked on. <laughs> um, but um, but I will say that I do like the way that that the music in Into Darkness plays in this scene because to me, like while this one is sort of like keeping up the idea of it being like an adventure and and hope and 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 sort of like an action beat in a sense in that one i i feel like it plays counter to what's on screen whereas like there's action on screen but the music has sort of reached a a level of transcendence where it's just sort of like accepted kirk's fate and Mm -hmm. and is just sort of like building to this crescendo of of um uh sort of like a transcendence but i that um, it, it works very well in a diff- completely different way. Um, also, the the scene that we, we just saw this the, that shot just a second ago with um, Spock on the ground kneeling on the ground, and in some magazine somewhere I don't even know where it came from, but there was a, a publicity still I'm assuming of that shot essentially where the camera was really low to the ground and you just see. Spock, you know, sitting on the ground, kneeling on the ground with his back to the camera. And um, it's just such a beautiful image which captures this entire scene. And I, I liked it so much that I cut it out and I hung it up on the wall at, at <laughs> work um, where it stayed for like 10 years. So I'd always see that image. And I'm like, I wish that was in the movie because it is such a beautiful photograph. But and and it, it sums up the entire scene in just that one image. It's great. Yeah, the set. I I I could be wrong, so don't quote me on this. I believe the set photographer was a man by the name of Bruce Beimer, Beamer, um, and he did you know these the, the photography while they were filming different scenes and. Uh, you know, all of his footage was black and white, and, and uh, at least most of it was black and white. And uh, it's always beautiful, I think. Was that a black and white picture, or was that a color? No, it, it was color, yeah. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, they did do a few color things, and, um, you know, it's uh, the beautiful beautiful photography. He, you know, um, he, his, his work has been so helpful with our work, trying to look at the making of the film. It's really his pictures that we're looking at. Um, this is great in terms of the acting. I mean, this, this, the, you know, Leonard Nimoy was nominated every single year. He played Spock on the original show. And I really always felt that he, and, uh, this was certainly at least him and Ricardo Montalban deserved some sort of Academy recognition for this film. Um, cause I thought they both did just, you know, amazing jobs and, uh, you know, William Shatner, just, I mean, I, there's really, there's not a single actor who's off their game. No one, you know, the emotion is there in every scene. Um, I love that because it's so fast, but when you look there, you see the, all the cadets assembled at the top as that comes mm-hmm. as that is lowered down. And I love that sort of the, you know, his, his friends are closest to him, but his students are, are above, you know, above him. And, um, with with Savick, Savick was actually to have a much bigger presence in the film. Um, 
in fact, she had a speech uh, during this sequence too, uh, where uh, she basically was saying, you know, uh, about him being her teacher, and you know, she cries during that sequence. And uh, I'm trying to see if I have, I, I have it here. This is what she would have said. Um, this was scripted. Uh, Vulcan philosophy deals with death differently than other cultures, but as my teacher and guide, Captain Spock endeavored to show me how people of goodwill may combine and integrate their convictions. The service I am about to read reflects that ideal, and then she reads something in Vulcan, and we don't know exactly what she says. But again, it was the idea that, you know, that they beefed up her role uh, initially because she was going to become... The, the, the person who replaces, if you can, uh, who follows Spock um, in the next film. She can only succeed him. She can never replace him. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. My shoes, Doctor. <laughs> and there's Todd Bryant again. He's everywhere in this film. This is a great example, by the way, of using the camera low. This set is very small. Uh, and they keep cutting it in half to make it look bigger. But basically where they're at is exactly where Kirk's at. It's a very, very small set. But by and then by filming low, again, the brilliance of Craig Denell and Gain Rusher, uh, just with the way that they, they milked those sets for what they were worth, uh, made that look like a much longer set than it actually was. So here we're coming up on... Um, David's encounter with Kirk. Now, how did Kirk finish that book so quickly? I mean, come on, hasn't he been busy? He said a really busy. Well, there was, there was, there were twelve hours away from, uh, from shoot, regular one. Okay. I mean, there's, there's a couple times where they say it's been a couple. You know, it'll be a day or so before we get there. Okay, fair enough. I love I love the symbolism of that where where you know Spock gives him the book, so Spock gives him information. Uh, McCoy gives him the glasses, so McCoy gives him the ability to interpret the information that Spock gives him. And and but because Spock is dead, Kirk can no longer access that information. So the the broken glasses to me always represented um, you know, the, 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 the breaking of the trilogy of the characters, you know, it's always Kirk. It's, you know, the it ego superego, it's Kirk in the middle, uh, Spock is logic. Uh, the superego McCoy is the, id. you know, uh, not carrying that too far, but he's the id. he's the, you know, he's the emotion. He's the, he's the prism by which you understand the words and the text. And, and, and because Spock is gone, Kirk can't read that information anymore. The glasses are broken. He can't see it with his own eyes. Um, I always loved that idea. Uh, you know, uh, you know that. And to me, those glasses being broken had to be intentional. You know, that was not just a. a maybe I have the interpretation wrong, but that's what I, I. You know, that there's some symbolism there with that. Yeah. Makes sense. He's a good actor too, Merritt Buttrick. He, you know, so many people are gone who made this film. It's it's behind and in front of the camera. You know, the, Craig Denault, the cameraman, died at a young age. BB Beach died young. Uh, we lost Paul Winfield a few years ago. Of course, Ricardo Montalban has gone five years now. Merritt Buttrick passed away. Um, you know, we've lost, of course, to Force Kelly and James Doohan and just. It's it's uh, you know the normal passage of time, but it's um, you know it's sad because I, again I, I there are so many questions about the making of this film and and so many people you can't ask anymore um, because I don't I don't I, I never felt this film got the making of attention it deserved uh, you know it, it deserves a big giant coffee table book like the Star Wars films do. I, I, I think mm -hmm. it's that important, you know, and I think it's that good. And dare I say, I, you know, I, I, I enjoy it more, frankly, uh, you know, than, than any other Star Trek film for sure. But I love, I love them all. The Star Trek is like pizza, right? There's no bad pizza. There's no bad Star Trek. <laughs> uh, you know, but there are some that taste Obviously a Obviously you haven't had Papa John's, but, uh, <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> um, uh, Obviously not a sponsor of your show. <laughs> <laughs> well, they were going to be. Jeez. Well, there you go. Yeah. For lunch. I guess they'll have to stick with uh, Peyton Manning, you know. Oh, well. <laughs> Sucks to be them. 
<laughs> but yeah. You know, here's the whole scene where, you know, I mean, in this movie, a lot about this movie is about, you know, these characters getting older and everything like that. And I had an, an interesting little uh, encounter yesterday where when I was at work, I just had this movie playing in the background, you know, just to kind of get a, a feel for it or whatever. Wasn't really watching it or whatever. And uh, my coworker was coming in and out of the room and he's 10 years younger than me and not a big Star Trek fan at all. He's seen the, the new movies and that's it. Um and he looks at it and he's like, that's William Shatner? And I said, yeah. <laughs> and he says, wow, he looks so young. Wow. And I'm like, okay, now I feel old. Now I know what <laughs> Kirk feels like in Star Trek II. Thanks, dude. <laughs> They had a they had a line in the you know in that scene where where McCoy gives Kirk a birthday present uh, that was it there they did film a longer version uh, we have the pictures of that where Kirk actually te- Kirk has to be taught how to use the glasses which is really a cute scene McCoy's like <laughs> no you look you look down this way you know and it's it's it, in fact if you watch that scene real carefully there is a tiny bit of an odd edit when they go from the two shot of them to Kirk and then, then they go back to a two shot and the glasses are down. And that's because they edited out the scene where he taught, you know, <laughs> that, but there was also, there was also a line in there where Kirk says, how, you know, you know, rhetorically how the, you know, I think he says, how the hell old are you anyway? And Kirk says, I'm 49. So they, they were going to establish his age in the film, but that was taken out as well. So, uh, but yeah, 49, you know, uh, uh, I'm, you know, that's that's not old. <laughs> it was old when I saw it was old when I saw the film in nineteen uh, nineteen eighty two, but it's not old now. <laughs> so we just saw the uh, the little sequence which was added to make way for Star Trek three, and I know that Meyer at least initially wasn't very happy with it. Now he doesn't really care, but right. But I mean, it's kind of I like every time I see it now, I'm like, oh, it's too bad that's there. I can see why he'd be upset because it's kind of like we spend this whole movie leading up to this thing and then we kill him and then we're going to end it, you know, like two minutes later with, oh, but wait, maybe he's not dead. Hey, <laughs> you know, it's annoying. Same with the yeah, I mean, that had, that had to be, you know, it's like I could see that being uh, especially the, the, the script writer and the director that that had to be hard, you know a heart wrenching addition, you know, uh, because you, because they really did treat Spock's death with a great deal of dignity. It had a purpose to it. It was, um, you know, brilliantly acted, uh, excellently directed. The music was beautiful. I mean, it was wonderful. And, uh, you know, and, and is, is it a cheat in a way to make you feel happy when you leave? You know, I mean, is you know, uh, that being said, you know, I think he, he realizes that you, it would be difficult and maybe even wrong to do Star Trek without Spock. And so, uh, you know, the original show. And so, um, uh, you know, I think he came to terms with that, I think, uh, you know, uh, but yeah, the, you know, what I like about it is uh, looking at the end credits here at the very beginning of the film, there's, um, just the brief thing where it says, you know, in the 23rd century, which, which Nicholas Meyer says he put in for his dad so that his dad would understand when, <laughs> when, when the film occurred, you know, as his dad wasn't a Star Trek fan and neither really, neither was, 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 uh, Nicholas Meyer. And, um, you know, but I think that's again, a great example of, um, of, uh, you know, judicious use of storytelling, you know, you don't need a big preamble of what, what it's, uh, what do you need to know? the 23rd century and you know and so and i always felt that way about the credits too here they're not flashy there's nothing fancy about them um but you know they they the music and and the the names and as i see the names now and they go they go across now i know you know there's bill couch's names you know the names there you go still photographer was bruce bermelin that's how you say his last name um who took those great pictures um the you know to see the names of the people and now to know who they are because of Bruce's fantastic photographs and uh, and and Nicholas Meyer having his collection at the University of Iowa has just been really rewarding because the names really mean uh, 
uh, a great deal to me, you know, uh, and I and I and and I love learning about the contributions of each of the people that worked on the film. I saw a stuntman. His name was John Robotham, Robotham, but I I I would like to assume that he pronounces it Robot Ham because why wouldn't you? <laughs> Do you know anything about him? <laughs> Yeah, he was part of the team with uh, Bill Couch, and the, there was a whole group of the performers. Um, Steve Blaylock was another one. Steve Blaylock was mostly, uh, well, he was an actor too. He was actually in in uh, Star Trek Three when uh, Morrow was walking around saying he's going to decommission the Enterprise. He's one of the cadets that's that's right there prominently. But Steve Blaylock is was Leonard Nimoy's uh, stand-in and stunt double. Um, there was actually Bill Couch Jr. and Bill Couch Sr. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, there was a really great team of people. He was one of the, that, that, that team of men and women who, who did a great job with the stunts. Because really, when you think about it, there are an awful lot of them in this film, uh, especially during the fight sequences uh, between the Enterprise and the Reliant. There's quite a bit of stunt work and also the Kobayashi Maru sequence. You know, there was just a thing, uh, Peter Amundsen. If I'm not mistaken, he was. Well, they listed him as a uh, an effects editor, right? But he's gone on to actually become like a, a big editor. He cut uh, Pacific Rim and uh, Shoot 'Em Up and, and Hellboy. He's Guillermo del Toro's editor now. So oh. yeah, that's kind of cool. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, it's. I mean, you see Ken Ra- Ralston's name from ILM in here. I mean, all these people who went on to do uh you know amazing work in other films you know uh mm-hmm. the guy you know got their start or at least cut cut some of their teeth anyway on this film the only thing that i can think of though while watching these credits especially the one that says filmed in panavision is that for the laser disc in order to make the credits bigger they took off the anamorphic lens and then made it four by three so that they're all squished together but larger that hmm. bothers me <laughs> what can you do one of my favorite pictures from the collection is uh nicholas meyer standing next to the camera the you know, the camera the big one yeah yeah that's cool that's a beautiful picture those are always good pictures yeah yeah i imagine it's better than the obviously staged one from a uh, motion picture where robert wise is like pointing and yeah. <laughs> like, we're making a movie <laughs> Over there. Point the camera <laughs> over there. There you just had the ultimate trivia question of all time. What Motion Picture Association of America number is Star Trek <laughs> 2? Right? I, didn't even know they, I didn't even know they had numbers until two, I just six, noticed six, that. Something. I'm like, yeah. wow. 26694. That is That will stump anybody. You can... You can uh, <laughs> And I only know that because I just saw it right now, you know. <laughs> oh, okay, good. It's not like we should expect this at like Star Trek Vegas during the <laughs> during the trivia contest. No, I don't think anyone's going to think of that. <laughs> well, that was to make that happen. Yeah. Well, that was Wrath of Khan. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. We really yes, appreciate it. Yes, thank you. It was... it was enlightening. Yeah. Very. Thanks, guys. I had a great time. Any any chance to watch Wrath of Khan? I'll... And, and we'll have you back for, for Into Darkness. For sure. In the meantime, I, I, you said you've got, uh, I, I know I saw it just yesterday, I think, you, the first part of that new series on StarTrek.com went up. Yeah, we're doing, uh, um, we're trying to get the information out now. Uh, we did, uh, Creation was kind enough to have us in Chicago and Boston. Um, and also, uh we're going to be sharing it with fans who can't make it to conventions or, or local talks here uh, through Star Trek.com. So it's a, there's a really fascinating history. Uh, some of it forgotten uh, history, some of it challenging the timeline of how we think about things that came out through this newspaper research. So there's a lot of great trivia in there. Uh, for example, in the article that's up now at uh, Star Trek.com, uh, little chatter about the Star Trek uh, being thought of as a mid-season replacement when it was first going to be on NBC. So 
you know, the little things like that, that, that haven't been out there a whole lot. Uh, we want to share with the fans and uh, with the readers at StarTrek.com. So yeah, it's going to be over the next few months. Uh, we got a couple other fun articles, little collectibles articles and things like that that are coming too. But uh, this is part of a four-part series we're, we're doing for that. And we're also going to be doing some talks at the libraries um, and, um, you know, if we're invited for uh, any other uh, creation conventions, we'd definitely be happy about that and share that with fans there because that's always a great way to, to share the information with, with people visually, you know. And, and I saw the presentation in Chicago and it was, it was really cool and informative and I, I learned some stuff which I had never known before and we're going to have to have you on to talk about that as well. Um, the, the Wrath of the what was it called the titans of the planet of planet of the titans what was planet yeah planet of titans and planet planet of of titans depending on which version yeah (laughs) yes we definitely want to have you on to talk about that because that sounds fascinating yeah Um, but yeah Yeah, star trek really needs uh some really good historical work i know some people are, are are you know have been doing that for years larry nemesek is one of them of course and uh uh richard arnold and uh you know i i you know, there's uh, there's so much history there, and uh, uh, you know, we we often get when we see like documentaries and things like that on TV, you get kind of the same information again and again, and it's important because you got to tell the story. You know, for each new generation who's just kind of coming into Trek or maybe has not seen a documentary before, but this kind of research allows us to kind of do these kind of niche, uh, you know, really look deeply at something like the making of Wrath of Khan or, or Star Trek and newspapers and things like that. And then, uh, share a little bit of history that, that doesn't get spoken of an awful lot. So, um, you know, there's a uh, Richard Arnold is great to listen to. He does great presentations at conventions and Larry is working on, I know a documentary about a famous Star Trek convention called the Con of Wrath, uh, which is really very much related to this film. It would happen conjointly with the movie um, time-wise. And uh, so I'm, I'm privileged to, to do anything where I can share the information that my wife and I are researching on uh, on that and uh if i could plug one thing we're going to be doing a talk in october at the cook memorial library if you people just go online and search the cook memorial library and then look at their their events they'll see it. it's free but it's um a look at the life of ricardo montalban um hmm. and it's a remarkable life uh his life is much much bigger um than any one character he ever played whether it was mr Rourke or, or khan and so there, there's definitely star trek in the talk and it's including some rare pictures and never before seen pictures um that we're going to show but it's really all about his whole life and a life of just sort of compassion and um volunteerism and activism and dignity and just i mean if anybody needs a role model in life um i can't think of a better one than uh, ricardo montalban so uh, we're really happy to be able to um uh, give that presentation and that's free for the community but they do ask people to register so that's going to be in october so you get a little bit of star trek but also uh, a lot more about ricardo montalban as a person all right well well thank you very much again for joining us we really appreciate it and we we can't wait to have you back (laughs) Sorry, I apologize. I'm going to hell. <laughs> Into punness. Uh, well, let's wait. Uh, let's right. hold those puns for the episode. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. Thank you. Well, that was another successful commentary with John Tenuto. We always appreciate having him on and really look forward to the Into Darkness commentary. Mm-hmm. But that's just one of the Trek topics we've been talking about on Trek FM this week. So here's a quick look at what you may have missed elsewhere on the network. So check out those shows and get in on the daily Trek talk. You'll find them on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, the Windows Podcast Directory for Xbox or Zoom. And you can stream from the website. Just visit trek.fm pd for podcast directory to get all the links. Well, if you want to contact us and share your thoughts on today's show or any of our other shows, you can go to trek.fm slash contact. There's a form there. You can choose to send a show and choose Standard Orbit. That'll come to both of us by email. You can also use the tab on the left-hand side of any page to send us a voicemail using your webcam's microphone, and you can talk to us and our other listeners on our forums at trek.fm slash forums. 
In social media, you'll find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm and on Twitter under username trekfm. Mike, where can people find you out of orbit? Uh, well, you can find me right here on Trek FM doing commentary Trek stars uh, with Max and on last week's episode, the one that dropped uh, just on Friday, uh, we have a special guest. Named Who? Drew. His name is Drew. Oh, yeah. He sounds awesome. Not really. But we oh. talk about uh, Tabletop, Will Wheaton's first show, so that's cool. Yeah, I like that show. Yeah, you should watch it. It's good. You can also find me on CommentaryTrackStars.com, where I do Off Topic with Max and, and our friend Brandon. And you can find me on Twitter at Mumbles3K. You can find me on Twitter at 005, D-O-U-B-L-E-O-F-I-V-E. And you can find me on other Trek FM shows, including Commentary Trek Stars. Wait a minute. <laughs> We've got an iTunes review. This one is called Still Going Strong. It's five stars by Liquid Cross. Nearly 50 years later, there's still plenty to talk about when it comes to TOS. Drew and Mike truly plumb the depths of this classic slab of science fiction, covering the obvious to the obscure, and even going beyond the series into related media like tie-in products and the 2009 reboot. There's a lot to be said about Kirk, Spock, and crew, so I'd wager 400 quatloos that these guys will entertain you. I think we should get Liquid to start uh, writing our episode synopses. Yes, he uses uh, awesome words like classic slab of science fiction. Mm -hmm. I need to add that to the uh, description of the show on iTunes. Yeah. Well, reviews are very important to us, not only because we like to hear what you think, but also because they impact how we place in iTunes and on Stitcher. Reviews make it easier for other Star Trek fans to find our shows. We know that it does take some extra time to visit iTunes and Stitcher to write the reviews, so as an added incentive to share your thoughts on our shows, we're giving away some great prizes as part of a month-long promotion. These include a season of Star Trek, Your Choice, on Blu-ray or DVD, an official Starship collection shipped from Japan, complete with Japanese magazines, Star Trek novels, and a full collection of our alien art badges. Winners will be drawn at random for all entries received before midnight Pacific time on July 31st, 2014. All you need to do to enter is to leave us a rating and review on iTunes and or Stitcher. You can leave only one review per show, of course, but you can review multiple shows and do both on iTunes and Stitcher. And for each review, you'll receive one entry in the drawing. Remember, you can also review the master feed, and that'll give you an entry as well. There are two steps for entering. One, leave a review on iTunes and or Stitcher, and then visit trek.fm review and complete the form. And we want to thank Liquid Cross, who was successfully, I assume entered in to win i hope so yeah i hope that he he filled out the review form on trek.fm slash review so that he could possibly win prizes if you didn't liquid go to it i assume that liquid cross was a she no i don't know i don't know anyway maybe maybe she should maybe they should write in to the uh uh, track that a film slash contact and yeah. let us know <laughs> but, but make sure you do go fill out that form because i mean come on it's like you have a chance at winning one of those Blu-ray sets. Those things are like $500 a piece. I'd rather have the the Japanese Starship collection ship. Really? That, yeah. That's crazy. Well, I know. I'm a crazy person. <laughs> because that's probably like, you know, what, 20 bucks? Whereas like... But I can, stream, I can stream the episodes of Star Trek. You can't stream die-cast ships. You can't stream the original versions of the original series, can you? Yes, you can. On oh, Amazon. on Amazon? All right. Okay. You win. But still, the quality is <laughs> not as good. The quality is no, not as good. No, it's not. No. So, yeah. And you don't get any bonus features, which is, is sad. There you go. But either way, I don't know if you get to choose or if 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 we get to choose. It but... says it says of your choice. Oh, of your choice, it's even better. Yeah. And unfortunately, I don't think that we're we're able to to win. No, that makes me upset. But what can you do? Well, before we go, we'd like to ask everyone to please support our sponsor, who helps us bring Standard Orbit to you each week. And our sponsor for this show is Audible.com. Audible is a great way for you to read all the books you've always wanted to read but never thought you'd have time for. Audible's the premier source for audiobooks with more than 150,000 titles to choose from and new titles coming every week. From classics to current bestsellers and even some of the most famous Star Trek books like Prime Directive, Federation, and Spock's World, Audible has something for everyone. Mike, do you have something for everyone? Yeah, I have uh, the second part of the Eugenics Wars um, series. 
We talked about part one last week, and, and this week there's Star Trek, The Eugenics Wars, The Rise and Fall of Khan Noonien Singh, Volume 2, which was also written by Greg Cox. This one is narrated by René Aubergenois. He of, oh my gracious. Yeah, you know, he was he's the guy from Eyes of Laura Mars. He and was also the guy who did the voice of the French chef in Little, Little Mermaid. Little Mermaid, right, exactly, right. Wow. And he's done some TV too, like Boston Legal. Anyway, wow. he's all over the place. The synopsis on Audible says, Many unanswered questions remain about the terrible eugenics wars that raged on Earth during the 1990s, an apocalyptic conflict that brought civilization to the brink of a new dark age. Centuries later, as Captain James T. Kirk and the crew of the Starship Enterprise are forced to defend a colony of genetically enhanced humans against Klingon aggression and sabotage, Kirk must probe deeper into the past and into the glory days of one of the greatest adversaries he has ever faced. And you can get this book for free on Audible since you listen to Standard Orbit. That's right. As a Trek FM listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice along with a 30-day trial just to see how great Audible is. So give it a try today, catch up on all those classic Star Trek books you've yet to read, and that latest novel from your favorite author as well. Just go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and sign up today. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash trekfm, and we thank Audible for supporting Standard Orbit and Trek FM. So everybody, thanks for listening. Have a good week and keep on trekking. It is the will of Landry. Mr. Chekhov, take us out of orbit ahead. Walk factor one. Hi, sir.